Hi there, another week, another high-performance podcast dropping into your life. Listen, we want the next little while to be the most life-affirming, uplifting, challenging, but inspiring part of your week. Here's what's in store today. I am neurotic about time. You know, I'm never late for anybody, ever. So I had this big conversation with the player, so I set the whole scene, and I said, you know, I can see Johnson looking at me, so, you know, where's this going? I said, well, I'm going to leave the room now. I want you to discuss time, because I don't want to stand it for the next eight years going, guys, don't be late. So that he came back to me, said time, 10 minutes early. And then we think of a name. We call it Lombardi time. Just meet any England rugby players, go Lombardi time, and they'll go 10 minutes early. Before we get into this week's episode, just a quick reminder that you can also find us on YouTube. Just type in High Performance Podcast. You can then subscribe, hit the notification bell, and join the millions who've already got involved and watched episodes of the pod on there. You will see and hear stuff you just don't see anywhere else. So check us out on YouTube. You simply won't regret it. Right, let's get to it then. Get ready for this week's High Performance Podcast. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi there, I'm Jay Comfrey. You're listening to High Performance, the podcast that delves into the minds of some of the most successful athletes, visionaries, entrepreneurs, leaders and artists on the planet and aims to unlock the very secrets to their success. Now, I think everyone needs a professor in their life. Mine is also a psychologist. He's an author. He studied successful sporting cultures for years. And today's guest actually created a culture, Damien, that made him champion of the world along with his team. So I guess the conversation today is right up your street. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to it. There's a phrase that's been really resonating before we came here today, Jacob. It's a political phrase called the Overton Window, which is where in politics, if you want people to start believing in something, you almost need to move the window in that direction and then bring people along with you. And I think our guest today is somebody that has demonstrated the ability to open windows and bring people with them. And I'm really looking forward to exploring it. Right, let's do it then. Let's welcome a man to the podcast who actually represented his country on the rugby field as a player, but it was as England's manager that he conquered the world. He took the team from the sixth best 
in the world to winning the 2003 Rugby World Cup. He then moved to football as Southampton's performance director, then to the British Olympic Association as Team GB's director of sport. He helped deliver their most successful ever Olympic performance in 2012. These days, he's a public speaker. You see him on your television screens. He's the founder of Hive Learning. He's an incredibly busy man, so we're so lucky that he took time to be with us today. Um, what he loves to do is share his knowledge with the world. So we're so lucky that Sir Clive Woodward has agreed to share his knowledge with us today. Clive, welcome to High Performance. Thanks, Jake, and very pleased to be here. Let's start with the Overton window then. How do you move the window and how do you make people come with you on the journey for whatever new view that window offers them? I've never heard that saying before, but I, I kind of un, un, understand. I, I think the key thing I want to just kind of, kind of stress is that um, as he's right to say, Jake, I'm, I'm probably best known for you know, 2003, coaching the uh, team that won, won in 2003. But, you know, that was like a six-year journey. But before that, I had sort of 16 years in the, in the business world. You know, you, you mentioned about playing for England. When I played for England, it was a totally amateur game. You know, it really was amateur. We did it for fun. Um, when I left university, I joined Xerox. I worked for Rank Xerox for eight years, including five in um, Australia, where I was a sales director based out of Sydney. And then when we came back, um, from Australia, I set up my own small leasing and finance company uh, based on the skills I learned with Xerox, Xerox Finance, um, which I also ran for eight years. Then lucky enough, my sport rugby union went professional in 1996 and I was offered the job as the first full-time professional coach. So a lot of my kind of, you know, kind of thought processes very much came from my business background, especially running your own small company. When I say small, it was kind of literally two miles up the road from here. It was 10 people at our, at our height no hierarchy, just 10 people in the room, you know, a finance broker taking on the, on the actual big bank. So, you know, when I got the England job, I, I didn't see it as quite a big deal as other people thought. You know, I think coaching a rugby team is a business. And I was very clear about that with the players that, um, like a business, you're here to deliver results through people. And you think about it, that's what business is about, what sport's about. So I was there to deliver results through people. And I think what I learned to do with my small company, very much so, was to kind of listen to the, to the, to the team. You know, when you're a small business, you listen to everybody, and I, I pride myself on being a good good listener. Um, I almost pride myself at not being good at new, new ideas. But when I when I hear a good idea, wherever it comes from, what I think I am quite good at is making that happen. Mm. If I think that in a sporting term is going to make the boat go faster, we, we're going to do it. So to a full, I want everyone in the room engaged. And some of the players was were, were very enthused about this. Some of them very unusual. They've never been asked before their opinion on things. So I'd want to get opinions, but be very, very clear. I was there to lead. You can get all the opinions, but I was there to say, okay, we're going to do it this way, but I want your thoughts on it. And I think that's what you described about opening the window. You're going to take players with you. And, and I think it was quite new to them. To me, it was kind of second nature based on this small business I'd run. And you want to hear other, other people's views and you're always getting the, the players' views. And I think also, you know, I'm still, I was still young enough then to kind of think as a player. I'd like to think if I was a player, I'd want to play for, for me. I'd be involved in it and not just be told what to do. So that's my number one point. You've got to, you've got to take players with you. And I made it very, very clear to the players, you know, that there's no such thing as a dumb idea. If you've got an idea or thought, I want you to have the bottle to stand up. Even if you leave yourself open to ridicule from the rest of the team, you and me are going to fall out if you've got an idea and you're going to walk out the door with it because you're worried about embarrassing yourself. So... That was a very new culture back in 97. It was that all the players were new to being professional athletes. And to have me kind of at the front saying, I think we can become the best in the world for, for, for no other reason, because we've got great players, we've got the financial resources. There's no reason why we can't, but we've got to actually start from scratch. And I need your input as well as my input. 
But that's, I think, what the answers you about, you know, how you open the window. You've got to take your team with you. And you, every single one of them has got a role, role to play in this. And how did you handle those that didn't come with you, though, Clive? Because some people will naturally resist anything new or, or, or different, which is what you were offering. So how did you deal with the resistance? Yeah, it, it, wasn't, a, it wasn't a case of just one meeting and describing another. This takes time to get over. And, you, and you're right. I mean, Johnny Wilkinson's a prime example. I mean, I'll never, ever say a word against Johnny Wilkinson. He's one of my all-time heroes. But when he first came in, I capped him when he was 17, just 18. Um, he was, and he's, he's written about this. This is no, no secrets. He was so shy. He was so sort of, you know, should I be in this room? Because he's sitting there opposite Martin Johnson, Lawrence Delario. Got this young 18-year-old, never played for England before. And, you know, you need your number 10, which is your quarterback in American football. You need your number 10 to be pretty vocal because he is your leader on the, on the field of play. And so Johnny had to make a big step. But it wasn't easy for him. And we had to really sort of do a lot of work on him in terms of almost like his public speaking skills that he could stand in front of the team and, and say these things. The way I did, basically did it was I, I have this saying that you know, great teams made of great individuals. I mean, I'll never underscore the, the importance of teamwork and working together as a team of people. But I think if there's a secret to teamwork, if you get every individual working at his or her optimum level and becoming world class, the team stuff becomes a lot easier to do. And I've always had this vision of sort of, and it happened to me, being in charge of a team, you're looking around the room, and you got half the team would be in any, any team in the world. They're the best in the world. So the individual has got to take responsibility for their individual training. And this is what I've got across the players, that if we want to be successful, yes, you've got to be this individual. You've got to become the best in the world, better than any other prop forward, second row, fly half in the, in the world. But also you've got to contribute to the team. If you're not, we're not going to win. You know, I still like bringing players here. Every single player would have come to a house, and, you know, just to sit down one-on-one, -on -one, meet Jane, meet the kids, and get across to them, this is a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity here, but I need it from you as well as me. You're going to get from buckets from me and the coaching team, but to be really successful, it's got to be a two-way two thing. And, and I think that's what we did. And I, and I you know, I, I can't praise that team high enough. Hugely talented players, but the, the real secret was led by Johnston, led by Delalio. You know, they got this. They did contribute. They they weren't yes men. They did question me, the other coaches, in a real a real positive way. And that's the way you can develop a, a, a team of people. But you've got to do it one by one. You've got to persuade every individual that he's, I, I need you to be part of this. Or if you if you're not, I'd question you being in in, in this in this team. I think that's interesting. The fact that you you decided to bring the players here, not en masse as a group for a barbecue, but as individuals. I remember Martin Keown saying to me that one of the magic things about Arsene Wenger was that just as you were leaving the dressing room for a game, Arsene would pull you to one side and say, hey, today's your day. Today you are the single most important player on the pitch. I really need you to perform. And Martin said it was only a few years later that he realised Arsene Wenger was saying that to every player in the build-up to that game at different points. And then eventually when the 11 run out to play the game, all 11 are thinking, right, he said, I'm the, I'm the main man today, not knowing the other 10 have been told the same story. It was interesting about coming to home. I did it for many reasons. What, what I basically remember giving the, the players almost like a, a Google map and saying, that's where I live. That's where I live. You know me, you know my wife, here's my mobile. Um, I'm not going anywhere. I'm not here to hide. If there's anything that you've got a real problem with, I want you to come and see me. Anything. So you, so you can never say... He didn't consult me about this, or I wasn't told about this. Any problems, come and, come and see me. And that kind of killed it dead. In, in the seven, eight years of coaching England, I think I had probably five players rang me, say, can I come and see you? And mm. every single one of those reasons was for personal reason. Nothing to do with rugby. It was a personal reason. Uh, we, we had some tragic times. You know, Will Greenwood, for example, lost his baby. Martin Johnson's dad dying and, and all sorts of stuff. So that's what happens. So when they need your help, they come and see you. Um, I'll, I invite them all here to talk about rugby, which they obviously came.
But it's interesting, it just kind of diffused that. I said, here, I'm not, I'm not going to hide anywhere. And it's obviously, you know, when you think about English coaches, not English coaches, there's real pressure on you because, you know, you, you, you know where to go. This is where I'm going to live forever. You know, if I screw up here, the neighbor's going to know it, the country's going to know it, they know where I live. I'm not going to sort of lose and then get on a plane and fly to New Zealand or South Africa or Australia. And I think it's a big, big thing because, you know, I'm, you know, hugely passionate about the, the English country, the English sports team, our football team especially. And I, I think there's a big, big thing there. And I, I made it clear to the players, this is where I am. You know, we're here to win. There's no other reason for us doing this because we think we can win. Um, but if you've got anything to discuss with me, come come and see me. This is where I live. Where do you stand on this idea that as a leader, there, there has to be a sense of detachment because you're going to have to make some uh, emotionless decisions about the future of those same people as well as... Oh, no, the, 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 absolutely. When I say I was, you know, I, I'd like to think I was close to players, but I, was, I, I never went out for a drink with a player. I'd never go out socialising with a player. To bring them here was, was yeah, it was a social event because I wanted to get to know them better. I wanted Jane, who was hugely important in this whole process, to get to know them better. To, um, and they used to come with their wives and girlfriends, by the way, so it wasn't just on their own, just, you know, so we get to know them. Um, Jane was awesome at this because, you know, she got to know the... the and why was it so important for Jane to be involved in this process as the wife of the England manager? Because she could find out things that I could never find out through their wives, girls, and their parents. Interesting. Jane got very close to the parents. Um, speak to any of the, the guys who played for me, ask them about Jane. Uh, she didn't get close to the players, obviously, that was for me, but she got close to their partners. And it was a really good thing to do because she got really close to them and she understood their problems as well. You know, Because if you're going to create this high-performing person, I, I'm with the England players, Jake, for a very short period of, of time, in, during the week, say, you know, hours. Their girlfriends, their partners, their kids, their mum and dads with them all the time. So they can be big influences on this. And they've got to understand what the player's going through. Make no bones about it. We had to make big sacrifices here. I, I thought we could win the World Cup. I thought we could be the best team in the world. But I need every single player in this kind of very short period of your life to dedicate everything to it. No distractions, no sideshows. And that's what I'd learned from my business world. If you're going to be successful, you can't be distracted. You've got to totally focus. You need your family with you, everyone with, with, with you. And, and that's what we kind of did. And... Jane, Jane was huge in that, looking, looking back now. And at the time, you're just doing it. But also, going back to your small leasing company, especially, you know, 10 people, did the same thing. You know, I was the boss, but I used to bring around here to talk to, not to try and get close to more mates. So you did the same stuff in business as you did in sport. Right? Are, exactly. you, are you basically saying there's no difference, really, between finding success in sport and finding success in, in business or in life? I'm it's the same process. Jake, I'm absolutely saying that. Sport is about delivering results through people. Business is about delivering results through people. There's no difference. It's just sport is a bit more high profile in many ways because you can't hide from the results. There it is every Saturday afternoon. You're either winning 20 nil, you're losing 20 nil, the media. So there's different pressures to it, but it's still, still it's exactly the same skill sets needed. And that's why I believe you you, you can cross over. And I'd, I'd love to see some, you know, real high profile business people put in charge of Arsenal Football Club or the England rugby team, because I think they'd be successful. On if, the sporting if, side as well as the business side? On, on the sporting side. As long as the number one thing is passion. You've got to have a, if you're passionate about this sport, or you're passionate about your business, you'll be successful. You, you need this passion for it. You can't just put someone in there and say, here, here you go. If, if, if it's not your you know, absolutely lifeblood that you're trying to do, if you're passionate about it and you've got that skill set and you've been successful in another business, that's why I think you can switch between sports and switch between businesses. Nothing will ever touch coaching England and seeing England win and the World Cup and that. That's kind of up there, which is almost impossible to get past, you know. But it's close. You can get there and other, 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 walks, other, other things you do in your life. But sport is a business, and I'm not saying that as a negative. It's just, if you think of the definition, delivering results through people. There'll be people 
maybe running businesses on this that say, but as a leader of the England team, you had the ultimate sanction that you can drop somebody or you can omit them from a squad, whereas employment law would say that that's not as readily available as an option for you. So whilst the people element I can recognise is important, how would you advise on people that have got difficult characters that are not coming with them despite your best people management efforts? Yeah, I've, I've often been asked that question, you know, about you know, how do you handle the Mavericks? And it was interesting because because you're looking after to win a World Cup. You know, it, it wasn't like that. It wasn't all plain sailing. We had we had a strike. We had all sorts of stuff. We lost to Scotland away, which I still have nightmares about. <laughs> this stuff happens. So it's not it's not this plain sailing. You seem to think when you win in 1999... We lost in the quarterfinals of the World Cup. I'd been in the job just over a year. Everyone's after my head, after sacking me. You have to get through this sort of stuff. So it's it's like a business. You never go from there to there. It's kind of on the way. And there's also big, big bumps in the road. But the same with the people. You'll, you'll have issues with people. You know, the, the, when I started in 99, you know, sorry, 97, the team was totally different six years later in terms of what, what actually came in. So, yeah, you, you're right. I can drop a player tomorrow if I want, want to. But you don't really want to do that. You don't actually want to just drop a player for, for no reason. But players got to know they they they, they, they got to come and go. But I think in the business world, the same thing. You got to sit down with your your, your team and your players, and you from a business point of view, and you go, you know, we're trying to be successful for your own individual efforts here. I need you to actually deliver on all this sort of stuff. If someone's not going to go on down that journey, and, and and also I think your job as the head coach or the leader of the business is to make that person better. Yeah, you know, make no bones about it. You know, in a football in terms, you know, can I make David Beckham a better player? Yes. Can I make him better at taking penalties? Yes. That's your job as a coach. The moment you're not doing that, you're, you, that's when you have problems. So long as the players realise and they think, you, I'm trying to make Johnny Wilkins and Martin Johnson better players by what we're actually doing, by the expertise we're bringing in, you'll get, you'll get it back in tons and tons. You'll get, you'll, you'll get it back everything. They know you can't bullshit players. And that's the one thing I've, that's I think the, one of the beauties of being an ex-player. They know whether you're delivering or not. You know, football players, you know, and I, I love football, you know, in, in their changing room with, with Pep and uh, Klopp and these guys, they know they're delivering. They have huge respect for those guys. So even if you're left out or dropped, there's not a lot you can say because they know that guy is delivering. And where it all falls, not just in football, any in rugby, if you do lose the changing room, and you can do that, that's an absolute a fact I can totally understand. If you're not really delivering, you've been distracted, you're off doing other stuff, then it can all go wrong very, very quickly i think it happened to Mourinho at chelsea i mean well there was an interesting story from your own background clive where austin healy had said that that you weren't fully committed to england because you had a business on the side as well and and then you sold your business and that was a statement of intent yeah i don't think austin Healy question i told the players because when the game went professional in 97 i can't even try to explain no one had a clue including me what that even meant right you know one minute we're amateur i'm leaving here going to work down the road, I'm coaching Bath as an amateur. Then suddenly it's announced on the radio, it's professional. Um, we were completely caught, you know, between the devil and the deep blue sea. England had a clue what was going on. The RFU decided to take a year off before they could understand what was going on. But a year later, I was appointed the first full-time professional coach. And I remember them coming coming here and it was, it was, it was kind of quite amusing about the whole negotiations because they, they were literally paying me Less, less than the teacher, you know, and suddenly he's after me to give, they didn't know what I was doing. They didn't understand my business. So I said to them, it's quite amusing. They offered me this letter saying that we're going to pay you this. I said, well, that's great. I'll, I'll bring the kids and family out and say, great, dad's the England rugby coach now, but we've got to move house. You all got to change schools because we can't afford anything. So I showed them literally my, my, my pay slips. This is what I get as a basic salary for my company. 
And they just laughed and said, we're never going to pay you that. I said, well, I can't do the job. You've approached me. I've not applied this job. So eventually we got it, we got it done. They did. So we, we, got, we got it done. And I didn't leave the business. And I said, well, I'm taking a year off, basically, to see whether this is going to work. Because I've got to be totally dedicated. I can't do the company. So I made it very, very clear. And after a year, I remember sitting from the players going, just to let you know, I've uh, now removed myself totally from this company. I've sold the company because I'm 100% dedicated to this process because I now understand what being a professional coach is about. I understand the England scene and we moved on. So it wasn't a case of Austin questioning me. It was me actually right, telling, okay. telling them I'm actually doing that. Um, but when in that year before I actually sold the business over to Anne, I was 100% committed to it. Didn't, didn't do a thing outside of coaching the rugby team. That's why I wanted them. I made it clear to them. If you're going to be successful, you've got to be 100% dedicated to this cause. And you're not going to stay in the team or around me unless I think you're totally committed to what we're actually doing here. People who are listening to this who are not involved in sport, but they are involved in teams and they're involved in running or owning their own businesses. When you talk about you've got to take people with you on the journey, what tips or tricks did you employ to, to bring people with you, to get the buy-in from people that others listening to this can employ in their own world, in their own businesses? Um, I think it comes back to, as you say, great teams are made of great individuals. It's a case of sitting down, sitting down with every single player and explaining to them what I think we can achieve here. And I'm saying, I can't do it on my own. I can't do it because I think I'm a good coach. I've got to bring you with me and you're going to be part of this actual journey. And we are going to set incredible standards, both individually and teamwork, to actually do this. I said really early on, and it's been well documented that I told the team I thought we, we could become the best team in the world. And that's the bigger accolade than winning a World Cup, by the way. You know, a team ranks 10th in the world can win a World Cup. But to become the number one ranked team in the world, which has never been before. When I said this early on, people ridiculed me. They said, well, you're never going to be better than the All Blacks in South Africa and Australia. And that's what I think we can. Now we perfect. We were great amateurs. We were so amateur what we did, the English. We were, but also, I was saying, if we go professional, we'll be the best professional people. And it wasn't difficult taking players with you because they wanted that that dream. They wanted that kind of massive carrot. And I just kept looking around the changing room. As I saw Martin Johnson, Delalio, Wilkinson are going, you know, bringing Jason Robinson in. You go, we can do this. Let's face it, you, you do need the players. But if, if that the players wouldn't make those statements. But I think England have always had the players ever since I played in the early 80s. But we've never gone that next step. We almost almost intimidated by the All Blacks, South Africans. We never thought we could beat them. So it was getting over that hurdle. And I promise you, when I was coaching England, when I first started off, Six Nations was fine, but that was just, to me, great. We've got to play those games. The real enemy were the All Blacks, South Africa and Australia. I made that very, very clear. We'd won lots of Grand Slams as English players, but no one had ever, ever taken on the Southern Hemisphere. When we had the games coming up, we totally focused on those games. They were the one I want to be judged by, especially when we played away from home. said, so, OK, I think we can beat we should beat teams at Twickenham, but can we go to Auckland? Can we go to Cape Town? Can we go to Sydney and win? And suddenly you're building the dreams up and players start to, you know, go with you. So you've got to set a dream. You've got to set, a, but it's got to be a realistic dream. One of our guests, Clive, we had an um, entrepreneur on this, on the last series, uh, Stephen Bartlett, and one of his sayings was that belief is, is prompted by evidence. So you have to find evidence that something is possible to then move towards it. So given that you were going into fresh terrain of, going to New Zealand and beating the All Blacks and South Africa the same. Where did you get the evidence to convince the players that this was possible? Well, it wasn't difficult. You had the evidence. And I just said to them, I want to play the game better than England's ever played before. We've we got, we got to play quicker. We've got to play faster. And you can see the excitement in the room. I said, I want to wake up Saturday morning of a test match against All Blacks and think we can play faster than them, quicker than them. And that's what we did. So the evidence was there. Reading from those first four games, we can do this. The one thing we were massively lacking was fitness and power. 
we were nowhere near the fitness of some members of the team because we were a year, years and years behind them in terms of our conditioning. So again, you know, I made it clear to the players, if we're going to be the best in the world, we've got to be the fittest team in the world. That's not just a throwaway statement. And, but you've got to do this with Dave. I'm no expert on fitness. I kind of understand fitness. I'm probably one of the best guys on fitness. Those guys just changed. And also, I, I think the team that played in 2003 today plays quicker than any of the team I see on the, on the planet. They're fitter, faster. Over 80 minutes, they play quicker. And just because you're English, no one could see this because they said, well, people in white shirts don't play this way. But we did. And then you bring Jason Robinson in and we just took the, the evidence, went to a whole new level. And the excitement of the team, because you just knew every morning as a coach, or every, most mornings on, on, on match days, you just felt really excited. This team's going to go and play. You know, and between World Cups, well, after we got beat by South Africa in 99, uh, and, and I do know the exact figures, but I think we played 51 games between losing in 99 and winning the World Cup. And we won 46. So just think that through. It's like a 90% plus win yeah. record. And that does include winning away from home against the Hemisphere 14 times in a row. But it wasn't just we had great players and, 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 and it was the coaching in terms of the, the real pace we played the game at. And that's why, you know, I can't praise Johnson and Delalio because they loved it. These are tough forwards. They didn't want to play slow. They want to play quick because pace is still everything. That's what sets you apart. And we wanted to play quick and faster than anybody else. I knew we had the players. Did we have the coaching ability, the mindset, the fitness to actually do this? And very, very quickly, we, we, we kind of, some of you people, yeah, we want it. We can do this. I want to be, I want to be part of this team. And am I right in saying that you created a situation where you made the players think that they'd decided the rules by which you would be operating, but actually they were really your rules? Yeah, it's, it's a, <laughs> I call it a thing called teamship. I couldn't operate any other way than I'm about to describe to you, but I've never read about this in a book, in a, in a business book or a, or a sports book. And all it is, is if you can imagine me in front of my, you know, nine people in my leasing company or in front of 20, 30 or rugby players, what, what I used to like to do um, was whatever we were discussing, I'd want them to discuss it first, literally without me in, in the room. So I'll just give, 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 give you an example. And this is so just some of the behaviours. Because I think the way you operate off the field of play reflects how you operate on the field of play. So let's take a thing called time. I am neurotic about time. You know, I'm never late for anybody, ever. Unless there's something massively happened out there, I can't be on time, but I'm never late. I think time says more about an individual or teams of people and probably anything I can think about. So I had this big conversation with players, so I set the whole scene and I said, you know, I can see Johnson looking at me, so, you know, where's this going? I said, well, I'm going to leave the room now. I want you to discuss time because I don't want to stand it for the next eight years going, guys, don't be late. I want to just put it as absolute part of our culture. So they kind of got it. This is why I think Johnson was a genius. He kind of got this. So they had a big chat about it. He came back to me in a bit of paper and said, you know, we, we, we get what you're saying. So we're, we're going to say time is, is 10 minutes early. So if you call a meeting to start at nine o'clock tomorrow morning, we'll be in the room at 8.50. And the key thing about this teamship rule, Jake, you, you can only become a teamship rule if you get 100% agreement. So it's not a case of 99% or nine out of 10. If you get 100% agreement from the, the people in the room, they then present it to you, the leader. You can still go yes or no. If I don't like what they come back with, I'm not giving away any authority here. I actually don't believe in democracy too much. I'm in charge of this team. But what I do want is their thoughts on this. I want them to all agree it. So that he came back to me, said Lombardi time, uh, sorry, time 10 minutes early. And I then read it, said, that's it. And then we think of a name. We called it Lombardi time after Vince Lombardi, a famous American football coach. You meet any, and you'll meet these players, just meet any England rugby players, go Lombardi time, and they'll go 10 minutes early. If a, if a player was late getting on the coach or late turning up for training, would you have to speak to them or would the other players do that for you because they, f they, they felt it was their rule that they'd created? One, I promise you it never happened. 
Right. If it did, the players will sort it out. Yeah. And if the players can sort it out, I'd sort it out. I mean, of course you can be late. Stuff can happen. You know, you can... And also, just to flip that around, if you've got a player then, which I never had, was arriving late, you've got a massive problem. Massive problem. Because you don't forget, we're trying to be the best in the world. We're trying to do something totally special here. And these may seem simple examples, but they're not. They are massive examples. And we then tried to create this whole set of teamship rules. And literally, by the time we got to Australia, we had hundreds and hundreds. We had a black book. Everything was in this black book. Everything was documented. Can you remember a few others for us? I can remember loads. I mean, I mean, just, just things like dress, language, the way we handle the media, whole load of teamship rules, and everything was documented. And when you know you've really cracked it, and this is, I think, the point you're making, which is brilliant. You know when you've really cracked it, and say you're one of the players. So, Jake, you come to me and say, Clive, we, we need to discuss this. That's when you cracked it because your team start to see areas we need to improve in and all this sort of stuff. I mean, it's interesting, you know, with what's going on now in terms of the, the, the world. You know, we also, in this room, in this, in this room, it wasn't just rugby players. We, we, my, my number two was Louise Ramsey. I did that on purpose. We, we had a lot of females. We had female physios. So I, I wanted them in the room. And this is all to be discussed. So the language one, for example, was within the team, obviously on the, on the training field, fine. But within the team room, if you want to make a point, you can use colourful language, but you only do if you want to make a real big point. But once you leave this team room, zero, zero bad language. Not, you can't say the word bloody, anything. Really? Because you could be outside in the restaurant, a kid should be next to you, you, you swear. You, that could be front page news. So you start to create this teamship rules. And what, what I'm saying is it sounds easy, but it's not because it's got to be driven by the leader. I understood it inside out and back to front. So I would just lead on stuff, leave the room. But then when, when you know you've, you've really cracked it, you can get into talking about rugby. I, you know, I'm going to talk about line out defense from this. You, you guys have a chat about it. I'm going to come back. I want, want your views on it. So you can actually just not be behaviors. It's your business as right. well. And it's not easy to put in place. It sounds easy. Uh, but it's not because the lead, leader's got to absolutely believe in what it. What I like about it, though, and you'll relate to this, Damien, it takes a set of rules and it basically turns rules into culture. It stops them being rules, doesn't it? It becomes a culture. Jake, I'm often asked, how do you, how do you get a culture? I said, teamship. That's the culture. The culture is a black book. We had all sorts of stuff about what is acceptable, what is not, not acceptable. And literally hundreds in the end. The dress one was interesting. You what know, we, we, had, we had a big thing about, you know, suddenly some guy... And I didn't like this. I was at breakfast and we're in the Penny Hill Park, beautiful hotel, uh, who were fantastic for us. And then some guy came walking in, one of the players came walking in breakfast with flip, flip-flops on. I'm going, that's just, so I couldn't wait to get to the next meeting. Guys, who thinks it's right for people walking in breakfast with flip-flops on? Now, you weren't barefooted, but flip-flops? Here's a good one. This, books and press. Now, you, you know, because you guys are from the media, the, the books and press. I'm the head coach. Half the team is able to write books about what's going on. Half of them have new newspaper columns. They have agents. They have media people. I said, this is quite tough because when I'm in this room and anyone else in this room, I want to be myself. I don't want to have to worry about you guys writing about this in tomorrow's newspaper or writing a book about it in three or four years' time because I'm, I'm exposed. And also, because I want, so I want some team sheet rules about books and press. And this, this wasn't just one meeting. This went on for months and months and months because you had... A whole bunch of the things. I'm just going, guys, we're trying to win the World Cup and be the best team in the world. Who wants to write a flipping book? Do it after we win the World Cup. Who wants to write a newspaper column? Anyway, but obviously some of the players were getting well paid to write newspaper columns. They want to do books. And so it was a big kind of no agreement within, within the actual team. And eventually, eventually they came back to me. And Jono again came back to me and he said, well, we, we think, we think we've got there on this. 
And he said, you know, we want to write books, we want to do newspaper columns, but what we all agree is we'll never write anything in the column or the book that anybody in the room, from you to another player or doctor or physio, would ever take offence at. And eventually I, I, I agreed it. I said, okay, that's going to be our team sheet rule on books and press. And, you know, I've, I can't recall a single thing ever written by a player, even now, that's critical of anything within, within that team. So I often say, you know, when you read Martin Johnson's book, it is the most deadly, dull, boring book you'll ever read. But he still sold. Team chip rules, that's why. Team chip rules. He yeah. sold millions millions of copies of it. So, you know, I talk about this with businesses now. You know, you, you know racism, you know, harass, harassment, diversity, inclusion is top of the agenda. Get it out on the table. Talk about it. Talk about it on the team. Create your own team chip rules. And you'll be amazed where some people start talking about stuff. You're wow. I just didn't know this. I just didn't realize this. And it's team sheet rules. And it's so powerful, but it's got to be delivered by the leader of the team. It's got, you can't just stand back and go, guys, team sheet rules the way you go. But you want real debate. You want thought. You want diverse opinions. And, and, and that side actually works. And it, it was so, so important for us. So, so important for us. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. So can I ask you then, Clive, around the ability to take that culture that you developed at England and you said it took time to get there how easy is it to take and transplant that so if we talk about the lions experience where you tried to do something similar as an outsider it looks like how easy was it to accelerate that process and get the same level of ownership amongst the it just takes it just group? takes time i mean i do i do it now in in businesses i i work i work in businesses in terms of putting in teamship rules to show them how you can actually do it and I can stand back and see what actually works. So it just takes time, but you've got to explain to every single individual player about why, you, why you're doing this. Uh, but I know no other way. I know no other way. If I was, you know, I love golf. If I was made captain of my golf club, this, I would do it. I'd sit down with the people and say, let me know what you think and then I'll make a decision about it. But it's just getting everyone's engagement about it. I think part of the issue here is that <clears throat> leaders naturally think they have to lead, right? It takes quite a brave leader to, in effect, allow the other people in the room to be part of the decision-making process. What teamship is, Jake, is a style of leadership, and it's mild style leadership. It's not a weak style. I think it's a really strong style because, you know, as I say, I still think as a player, 
So if I, if I can still think as a player, if I was sitting there as a 24 year old and I've got an idea, you know, and I, I couldn't feel before empowered to actually stand up and say it, I think we can do this better. That, that's, that's crazy. I, I would not bring teamship in unless I thought it would make the boat go faster, it would make us score more tries, win more gold medals at the Olympics. That's why I brought it in. It's, it's not a fluffy stuff. It's, it's, not, it's, it's not weak management or leadership. It's real strong leadership. But it's acknowledging the people in your team have got some great thoughts. And when you think of that team that won in 2003, I make no apologies for keep coming back to that. I mean, there was such brains in that room. You, you think of, but here's what the guys are doing now. Dawson, Kay, Delario. You should use the brains. You use the brains, yeah. yeah there were clever people then. They're clever people now. Um, and you use it. You, you, you're tapping into it. As I said before, the, the secret is understanding... You know, and I've really learned to kind of almost leverage this. I almost pride myself on not being good at new ideas. What I pride myself on is getting people around me who are good. But, but when I hear a good idea, what I think I'm quite good at is I'm, I'm making that happen. I'll shift heaven and earth. If that's going to make us both go faster, we're going to do it. That Lions tour of 2005 um, is into. I've spoken to some of the players that were part of that setup and they speak really highly of how professional it was and some of those same standards that you brought that you obviously had with England I'm interested in what do you think you would do differently now when you look back on it with hindsight not a lot to be honest the only thing I'd probably do differently is um would I actually do that job you know I didn't apply for the job you know what basically happened and, and I'd always you know I'm coaching England everything that was the highlight Coaching the Lions wasn't a highlight for me. Coaching England was a highlight. And if I'm brutally honest, man, I played for the Lions when the two Lions tours in, in 1980 83. So I love the Lions. When you're the England rugby coach, they get in your way. I make no bones about it. They are, they are an interference. You know, right two years before the World Cup in, in 2003, we're right there. The Lions go to Australia in 2001 with Graham Henry. That disrupted us so much. So, of course, you win the World Cup in 2003. Next thing they're knocking on your door, we want you to coach the Lions. And I, I didn't accept it. I just came back and, you know, every part of my body, every part of my, my, my head said, don't do this. You, you've got no upside here. I'm very English. I, I spent four or five years trying to knock these guys' heads off, the Welsh, Scots and Irish. So suddenly you're now going to be in the same room as them, coaching them, giving all your, to almost IP away. So I, I did the I did the lines. And if you just go into it immediately, not 100%, you know, I'm not sure. That, that kind of rubbed off. And in, in many ways, I did too much. I tried to cram in all that I'm trying to explain to you this morning into, you know, the, the England, you know, I took over in 97. We won the World Cup in 2003. So it wasn't six years. It probably took three years. You know, we probably could have won the World Cup in 2000, 2001. I think we're good enough then. So it took about two or three years to turn it around. The, the Lions is two months. It's, it's two months. And you've got a whole bunch of strangers <laughs> You know, the English guys are there. And I probably did too much. I tried to bring a lot of this teamship stuff in. We're, well, we're really... Do you remember your first message to them? To try and really make them understand that this was a new era, a Clive Woodward? Yeah, I, I tried to get across the, 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 the fact we're going to take a lot more players, we're going to take more coaches, we're going to you know, build this thing up. And I, you know, to answer your question, would I do anything much differently? No. Um, I tried to take the players with me, but I, I could just see there was some glaze over the, the eyes. And also, it was, I got off the job in like the... January, February 2004. And like us all, I'm writing my Lions team down. I've got all my Star England players, but I'm just chucking in O'Driscoll. I'm chucking in Paul O'Connell. I'm chucking in Henson and a few, a few other guys. I, I generally thought we could win. I thought, geez, if that's the Lions team, we can win. Two years later, there's my first team. The, hardly a single name was the same person. Oh, right. There was 
all sorts of injuries. Martin Johnson retired. It just, and you just get, it goes, you know, it's, and also, you know, it, it's amazing how good a coach you become when you've got your full strength team. Yeah, sure. You know, we won the World Cup in 2003. Didn't have a single injury. Everyone was, everyone was there. I think if I had a full strength team in 2005, we'd have half a chance. But we, we just went there and, you know, we didn't just get beat. We got, we got kind of smashed, but behind the scenes, was it fun? Yeah, there was no problems, but it was a massive setback for me because I wasn't used to, to failing. But when you look at it logically, you just, you, why would you, why did you do that? See, but that's interesting to me because you've spoken about, you've surrounded, like you're a leader that has the courage to surround yourself with experts, whether it's in fitness or the science of what you're doing. And yet those same experts are saying to you, don't do this, Clive, there's no upside. And you chose to ignore them. When I say experts, this was family, this was wife, sure, this was yeah, Jane. This was, they're this... people that know you as oh, well yeah, as all, all my England coaches going, don't, just don't do it. But, but I also had this kind of vision of the Lions going there, getting beat 4-0. Um, some coach getting roasted and me sitting here not feeling very good about it. Was thinking, there an element of ego as well, though, where you thought, I've done it with England, I'll do it with the Lions. Oh, and massive, that is... massive, Jake. I don't think I've got a massive ego, but yes... Would I have done much different? Not not really. At the end of the day, I can sit and make as many excuses as you, as you want. At the end of the day, that was an outstanding New Zealand team. That team in two thousand five, you know, Carter had come in, McCaw was in. They they were they were brilliant, full strength. We were a long way off what I wanted the, the team to be. And of course, you get beat, and what happens? Is, and you know, you know this when when you win, you you get so much praise, far way over the top. And when you lose, it's the other way. You get absolutely annihilated. So I I got some more than my fair share of positive feedback from the media. So it was a big learning thing to me, but you know, that was part of all. all Does it all, matter all though? Up. Like, isn't life basically about experiences? I remember interviewing Pep Guardiola when he first joined Manchester City, the first interview, day one. I said, why have you joined Man City? His answer was to feel what it's like to manage in English football. I want to feel the FA Cup. I want to feel the Premier League. Like you now know what it's like to manage the Lions. When your life ends, whenever that is, no one will ever take that away from you. And isn't life about, whether they're good or bad, knowing what that experience is like? You can only be richer for knowing what it's like to stand there and say, yeah, I led the Lions. Yeah, I, y- yes and no. Because um, you like winning. Yes, yeah, I, I just, you never plan for failure and you hate failure at the time. But you, you're right, looking back now, that what happened to me in 99 was a, was a great kind of, you know, I got out of jail. I got through it. I totally changed after that 99 tour and what I actually did. I became far more my own man. I think Graham Henry changed after 2001. So you don't plan for failure, but the, the line, I'm often asked about the Lions and it's quite simply, you, you coach all your life really, but everyone's come back to the Lions like two month period and you, you get beat. And of course the, the criticism is, is way, way over the top. It's like you get too much praise when you actually win, but would I do anything different to answer your question? No, There's, you know, I threw the kitchen sink at it. I really did. But I, I, I just think I almost threw too much at it and I think yeah, I confused sure. a few people. And the reason we ask isn't to, isn't to dwell on that failure. It's more that it's about people listening to this that say, how do I accelerate some of the lessons that you adopted over a long period of time with England into that short... I've, I've got to get short-term results... How do I take some of the I same think from a, again, from a, you know, we're talking about all sorts of people from, from the business point of view, you know, there's that f- famous saying that the, the grass is very, very green. I, I do believe in that. I often question a lot of people who are about to change jobs, change careers. I say, are you absolutely sure? Because you've got to be totally sure. Because I, what I don't want to advise you and you're looking back in six months time going, actually, I should have, I should have stayed here. From, from that point of view, I mean, I was on top of the world in 2003, in 2004, you know, I was having my, my issues with the RFU because I wanted to take England to a whole new level. I wanted to, I wanted to go to Paris, coach the team in four years' time in, 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 in 2007. 
uh, and arrive as the best prepared team in the world and win the World Cup back to work. That was my my only, only goal. Then suddenly I got distracted by this Lions and it almost meant I couldn't coach England either because I, I stepped down from England, not because of that, because lots was going on. But really looking back now, you know, I, I, I wouldn't say that kind of um, that experience made me a better, better coach. It, it kind of certainly toughened me up in terms of I was a bit surprised at the, the media reaction to it because it wasn't like we'd been there 10 times, 11 times or won 10 times. Yeah. <laughs> I wasn't booking the trend. Did you go back much. as a coach though, Clark? Well, a, a couple of times, yeah. Um, I've do so many things. Well, so many times I do a few things now which I really do enjoy. What I've been really pleased about since I stepped back from rugby, you know, I went into football, and that was fantastic. I had an amazing year in, in professional football. Southampton were brilliant with me, and I was going to become a professional. I was going to coach the football team. I've no, no plans about it. Uh, Rupert Lowe, the chairman of South, South, Southampton, was took took me on as the director of football down there. I sat in Harry, Harry Redknapp's office for for six months, which was awesome. I mean, he's just such a brilliant guy. And what happened with that then? Why didn't you? Oh, it's a very simple story. I mean, in a way, I kind of fell out with rugby because I fell out with people at Twickenham. I couldn't understand that after backing me for seven, eight years, winning the World Cup, the best team in the world, I thought, right now, we are going to become, we're going to set up a complete empire here. We're going to, the All Blacks won't know what's hit them. And suddenly, from supporting me totally, they everyone changed. And they almost said, look, we're not going to do what you're saying. You know, you just won the World Cup. Just go and do it again. You, we're not going to make all these because what I was trying to do is changed completely. I wanted more revenue going to the clubs. Everything that's happened since has happened since we fell out. And in the end, I don't think you can run the England rugby team unless you've got to support the board and the chief executive. And I didn't get that after the World Cup. They thought I was out of control. You know, you get knighted, and suddenly they think you're going to change and become this, you know, sort of person with two heads or something. And I wasn't. I was just very clear about this. But they'd always back me, and suddenly they weren't. So we had pretty big fallout. So I left. And I was sat at a dinner with Rupert Lowe and, you know, he, he knew I was passionate about football. And he said, well, if you do leave, just give me a call because I've taken you into, into football. So I rang him. I said, are you serious? He said, I'm absolutely serious. So that kind of fast-tracked it. And I then went into Southampton. There was a lot of media about it, you know, you know, going into football because people couldn't, couldn't see it. You're a rugby coach. How can you coach football? Which is the most stupid thing I've ever heard, to be, to be brutally honest. And I'm a, my background, I'm a PE teacher. My background is a degree in Loughborough in sports science. I'm a trained teacher. So I'm saying, well, when you're when you a teacher, you coach football, rugby, tennis, cricket, you touch anything. The key thing, are you passionate about it? And I love football. I always have loved football. And I couldn't wait. This was this was it. So I did all my badges. I'm a fully qualified UEFA coach. I've not got a single qualification to coach rugby. Zero. None. Um, but I'm a fully qualified football coach. Did all my badges down there. And I was going to do it. I've made no bounds about it. And it's interesting looking back now, Arsene Wenger was brilliant with me. Uh, Alan Pardew was brilliant with me. You remember these people because, you know, I came in, I was quite high profile because of the World Cup. And I loved it. But I had to start at the bottom. Uh, two job offers at the end, end of this year. One was from High Wycombe, my local club just up the road here. And the other one was from Pete uh, Win Winkleman at uh, MK Dons. And to go in and be the proper head coach. And I couldn't wait. And I couldn't wait. I couldn't decide which one to do. And then all that happened was, out, out, of, the, out of the blue, we, we won the Olympic Games bid. Um, and a guy called Colin Moynihan, who was the Minister of Sport then and, and the charge of BOA, he came here to see me. And he said, we're reading about all this football stuff. You know, we've just won the, the Olympic bid, which we weren't expected to do. And he said, I'm going to create this new position called the Director of Sport for Team GB. You work for the BOA. You'll oversee the whole of Team GB. So he said, you'll do Beijing, you'll do Vancouver, but the, the goal is London 2012. We, you know, so it's like a six-year contract. Moynihan left. I'm literally sitting here and I've, I've literally got, you know, a contract here from MK Dons, bottom of the fourth division, contract here from High Wycombe, second from bottom of the fourth division, or director's bought Team GB, six-year contract, it's London 2012. So Jane kind of said, 
and I'm sitting shaking my head. He says, what's that? I said, oh. And she, there's those famous last words. And she says, I'll be really having this conversation. <laughs> there you so, go. Jane again, so, vital to so, the whole yeah. process. So that's what happened. But Southampton was interesting because at, yeah. in, the, in the academy there, Gareth Bale was in the academy, Theo Walcott was in the academy, Nathan Dyer was in the academy, Goldrick. These are all 16, 17-year-olds. And interesting, just working with them, you know, they were no different than Johnny Wilkinson. They were just the same. They were just different sportsmen. And they at that were, age, they probably were open-minded. And then they were yeah. open-minded. They were, fan they were fantastic. And Would you be tempted now to go back into football and take all the oh. knowledge you've acquired in rugby and Purely, I'm not, I'm not tempted because I'm very happy what I'm doing. I say I'm involved in the ski academy in the south of France. I'm doing various things. And, and life's pretty good at the moment. So it would take a big reason. But I don't know if I had to do it, I just do it by what I did with the rugby team, like I did with my leasing company. The running a football team is running a business. But uh, that year was fantastic. It gave me a whole year to see it firsthand. Harry, Harry was brilliant with me and we had, we had our moments, but we had great fun as well. And I learned a lot about, about the football world. And it's a tough, tough game. It makes me chuckle when rugby, play, rugby people say, well, you know, footballs are diving all over the place. It's a soft game. It's not a soft game. When, when, you, when you're involved in professional football, these are tough, tough people. And you've got to be tough physically, tough mentally. And uh, I, I just say, guys, you haven't a clue. You know, this is just as tough as, a, as a, any, any rugby player. We've, we've got a few quick-fire questions in a moment. Before we get to those to finish off with, the one thing that I'm really interested in is you're quite process-driven, right? You believe by using process, you can create a winning environment. Does that mean that anyone can be a high-performance individual. Anyone listening to this, they think, well, you know, I'm not sure I am high-performance. I'm not sure the people around me are high-performance. By using process, can anyone get to that point where they will impose their will and they will have success? The answer, the answer is undoubtedly yes, but the, the most important thing, Jake, is to understand, let's use golf as an as analogy to so explain what I mean. Um, I love golf. It's the one sport I can still play. I play off six-handicap golfer. So, right, what I'm saying to you is I cannot beat Roy McIlroy. I cannot beat Tiger Woods. I cannot beat them. That's just pipe pipe dreams. Yeah. But my competition is everyone who's on six. So I'm going, okay, my competition is you, everyone who's on six handicap. Can I beat you? Yes. Absolutely. By having a process of how I go about doing it. And what, what I do, this, this process is, and, and this is a bit what Hive, Hive Learning does, the, the, the process is basically saying, okay, I'm, I'm off six, you're off six. So I'm now going to put a plan in place for me to beat, to beat you. And the first thing is all about learning and, 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 and knowledge. So what, I, what I've, and this is what I do in my golf net, my putting green, um, I actually put a, a process in place of how I can really learn what this is all about. I've got five areas, I've got the full swing, got pitching, got short game, uh, got bunker play and putting. It's just five areas. So I'm going to study those five areas and I'm going to really study them. I'm going to, the whole process is to really study them. But that, when you study something, you get all this knowledge and then you, you create what I just call key points. So out of the full swing, you must have bucket loads of knowledge, but out of, those, out of all that stuff, what are my four or five key points? If I know I do bang, 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 better than anybody else who's six handicap, I'd probably beat them. And this is the process. When, you, when you've got your key points and you've got your checklist, how do you do them better than anybody else? You practice for it. And that's the, that's the process. But the key thing is understanding who you're trying to beat. You can't, you, you can't beat someone. But that process can be applied to anything. Anything you do. And once you beat the people who are also six handicap and you're a five handicap, do you then redo the process yeah. against the five handicap, yeah. then you're four, then you're... Th yeah. Right. You just, you, just, you just do it. Love it. You, 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 sit there, you sit in there as a journalist. I'd be saying to you, if I was coaching you, I'd go, okay, we're going to let's break down for you to be a successful journalist... 
what are the chapters based? Wish I'd done that years ago. If you're going to write a book, <laughs> but this, this is what if, if you're if you're going to write a book about being a successful um, broadcaster and journalist, let's break it down what you actually do. Let's get all this information and knowledge, but then let's come back. What are the key points? If I had to have six points for you doing this interview with me that make it a successful interview, what are the six points? When you've discovered those yourself, yeah. how am I going to do these better than anybody else? How am I going to redo that? And that's the process that's in place. And I call it 3D learning. So the 3D learning is the first D is discover, always getting information, always getting more and more knowledge, never stop learning. The second is distill, distill it into key points. So just four or five bullet points. And then the third is do, D for do. How do we do it better than anybody else? That was the process we put in everything in the rugby team, a drop goal. If that drop goal doesn't go over in 2003, I'm not sitting here talking to you all these years later. But there's a whole process went in place about how we create, create the drop goal, the whole team, discover, distill, do. The rest is history. So we do a quick fire round, Clive, just at the end. So what are the three non-negotiable behaviours that you and the people around you have to buy into? Relentless learning, which I've been called teachable. Um, so you've, you've got to be what I call the sponge on the rocks. That's the first one. The second one is uh, what I call attitude. And what I do in attitude, I have 10... I break attitude down into 10 areas. Um, they're non-negotiable. One of them is punctuality, for example. So the, those are the 10 things non-negotiable. And I think the, 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 third, the third one is what I call about, about pressure, how we handle pressure. And pressure is all about... Uh, teachability is all about today. Pressure is all about trying to work out what's going to happen in the, in the, in the future. Because then if it happens, you can deal with the pressure about it. So it's actually thinking about the future and how we're doing things. So they're the non-negotiables. But sort of an underlying those is four. You've got to be be part of that. What advice would you give to a young teenage Clive just starting out on your journey, knowing what you know now? Relentless learning. Write everything down and try and keep it. You know, if, if I could have, Jake, kept everything I've learned the last. You know, I, I played for England when I was 23, which is unfortunately nearly f over 40 years ago now. If I could have kept every bit of knowledge, it's priceless. Because you're trying to think it's in your head. You can't keep it on your head. You've got to write it down, keep it, store it. And sometimes it's the old ways are the best ways. And I've worked with great coaches, great players. And this is what Hive Learning does now. It allows you to capture it through technology. But I wish I'd kept that, all that knowledge from, from the start. And that's what I'd say to a, a young Clive who's a player. Study, study what you do. Really study. Really understand it. And you'll do it, you, you'll do it better. How did you react to your greatest failure? badly i'd say i think my greatest failure was was not the line the greatest failure for me was that 99 world cup now we had no way we we're going to win it um but i didn't expect to get bombed out in the quarterfinal i literally came back here and um you grieve it's like a loss you know you, I, I came back and literally went to bed for about a week and then literally got out and said that's it enough feeling sorry for yourself bosh out you go are you happy I'm very happy. I'm extremely happy. Extremely lucky um, in my personal life, my family life, um, sport and business. I feel very, very lucky. So, but you know, I, I kind of pride myself. I work hard. I, you know, I can't imagine not working or not being active and, and working. So I, I'm very lucky because a the family, b I'm, I'm healthy. Touchwood. How important is legacy for you? Uh, no, no I, I never think about legacy. You know, I. The legacy you, you can't control legacy legacy all, all i know is you know everything i've done i've been really lucky i, I think anyone who you talk to who's worked with me I, I do throw the kitchen sink at things and i just find you, you say you can't bullshit players you can't bullshit people in your office they know whether you're putting it in or not and if you put it in 
there's a big chance you, you will get people's trust and respect. If you don't, you, you won't and you can all fall out. And the final question, and um, I think often almost the most important one of the whole podcast, really, it's the final thing that you're going to leave people with. Your one golden rule for people listening to this to live a more high-performance life, your kind of one parting message, I suppose, for people listening to this. The big thing for me, Jake, is 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 learning. I, I think learning is, is such a great, great thing. And let's face it, today with the the internet and technology there's no excuse there's learnings everywhere the moment you stop learning if if you're going to be in a competitive environment you're going to come second at best um if you can have continuous learning but most importantly get your whole team learning as well and finding ways of filtering all this learnings in into kind of key points and objectives you've got half a chance there is a great quote which i'll finish off this was actually i read somewhere this was put down to clive woodward I actually got it from Nelson Mandela, but I'll, I'll take the credit. Yeah, lovely, take it. <laughs> you never lose. You either win or you learn. Yeah. And I think that would be my man, mantra I'd like to leave anybody. You, you never lose. You either win or you learn. And I think that would be my final legacy to anyone who's actually worked with me. I love that. Listen, thank you so much. Not just for taking time out of your day to join us on the podcast, but opening us up to your beautiful garden, letting us come here and have a conversation about some of the amazing things that you've done and learned crucially along the way. Cool. Thanks, Jake. Thank you. Damien. <laughs> Jake. I'm so interested about Clive Woodward because he's a man who has built a career in a world of sport where there are so many variables, yet he's done it solely through process. Yes. It's interesting, that mix, isn't it, of, of having to be process-driven in a world where literally anything can happen at any given moment. Yeah, and I think that's been his real strength in terms of as a coach when he when he kept telling us that success didn't happen in straight lines. He spoke about the setback in '99 when they got beat at the quarterfinal stage. Uh, he spoke a little bit about his Lions experience, about how success doesn't happen in that linear process. So, I suppose the best way of keeping yourself focused and calm in any situation like that is to focus on next step, next step, next step. I think there's some brilliant takeaways as well for people listening to this. And it doesn't matter whether you want to be better at sport, better at your job, or just a better parent, is the way that he talks about, particularly towards the end there when he spoke about golf, for example, he breaks it down into a number of tiny parts. And if you just improve each of those tiny parts, you improve the whole. And that is a, that is a great lesson for anyone that's listened to this pod, I think. Yeah, I think so. Um, I'm like. I often feel quite cynical when people talk about marginal gains. There's a, there's a famous uh, sports coach called Vern Gambetta that says, you know, when people are seeking the marginal gains, what they often neglect is the basics. Get the basics right and add them on top. And um, I think what Clive was saying there was that idea that you do need to have the basics in place. They're your building blocks, and that's the process. The marginal gain stuff, the one percenters, are secondary to, to just being good at uh, the basics interesting and you know that I'm a big advocate of failure yeah fail often fail early fail forwards I'm not sure he is comfy with failure which is so interesting because he would have failed so many times throughout his career yeah well that was a really fascinating topic and that's okay that by the way failing's on. okay 100% yeah I mean I, I think that the the reason I was keen to get him on asking about that Lions experience was not to be a smart ass about it it was to understand well that was quite a 
high-profile failure for him. So what did he learn from that that helped him be successful with the Olympic movement and uh, on all the other uh, initiatives that he's been involved in? What's great, though, is it's a reminder that if we can get our processes right, even though this doesn't sound particularly sexy or dynamic or exciting, if you can get the process right, then you can get the end result you want. Yes, exactly. But again, I think for anyone listening to this, it's the idea that you need to focus on the outcome. You need to know where you're heading, but you also need to be flexible about the route in which it takes you to get there. And that's the process stuff. Another enjoyable conversation, wasn't it? Oh, it's been brilliant. Oh, it was such an interesting opportunity to speak to Sir Clive Woodward. Just a quick reminder, if you enjoyed the conversation that you just heard, please, just wherever you get your podcasts from, rate us and review us. It makes a huge difference. It means that we can reach more people than ever before. So if you can just spare a couple of minutes to do that, I would be hugely grateful. Damien Hughes is with me. Hey, mate. Hi, mate. How are you? I'm well, thanks, Professor. How are you? Yeah, we're all good. Thank you, Jake. Got a lovely message this week, actually, from uh, Josh Butler, the England cricketer, um, saying he's uh, he's been enjoying the podcasts. And we, we exchanged a couple of messages. He particularly enjoyed the Sean Dyche one, but he said he's listened to quite a few of them. He actually said that loads of the lads in the England dressing room are getting a lot from, um, from these pods. I know Chris Wokes is a listener as well. I do love it, you know, when we find that we're actually using high performers to inspire other high performers. Yeah, I think it's really... It's really satisfying. I think part of the reason from when I've spoken to some of these sports men and women is that I think it's giving them conversation topics that they all feel, they all experience, but it maybe allows them to start a conversation that otherwise wouldn't be being had. And I think that's really gratifying to know that people are starting to think about what are our non-negotiable standards or talking about how do we deal with failures and setbacks within those kind of environments. I think if we're facilitating those conversations, I think it can only help them. There was a nice message from Alzi Clark, simply said, I love this pod, there's no fluffy stuff. Um, Ulsterhammer said, dodges the artificial questions, which is another phrase that I like. Um, Frio27 said they love the pod and felt compelled to review it. What I, what I enjoy is that people seem to think, exactly as you've just said, that this conversation isn't happening elsewhere. And I think often when we start talking to the guests... They spend the first 15 minutes thinking, oh, here I go, another interview, doing the rounds, more press, more conversations. And then they suddenly, the penny drops and they're like, hold on, I, I, this is not what how I'm talking to other people. Yeah, I, like, I often go back to that, um, that interview we did with Sean Dyche where we got to the end of the hour and he went, we've not even mentioned football once, we've not discussed tactics, we've not discussed particular games. And I think that to me encapsulated what we're trying to achieve, that it's not about the sport, it's about the people that just happen to work within that sport or that industry or, or or that particular realm. Totally. And there was a really nice message that came in this week. I won't use the name just in case they don't want it to be shared publicly, but they said, I'm listening to the podcast. I think it's the best one out there. I was made redundant at the end of October at the age of 49, having been in full-time employment since I left school. And I even had various part-time jobs well before leaving school. So this is a major change in my life. And I decided to take some time out, which gave me the opportunity to listen to the full list of the High Performance podcasts. They're truly inspiring and just what I needed. If only they'd been available when I left school. And there was another message that came in from someone saying, look, some of the people on the pod I like... Some of the people I don't like, but I can I can work out how to deal with people I don't like or don't agree with by listening to their point of view on the pod. And I think that 
That's a big one for me because we seem to spend our lives avoiding anyone that has a difference of opinion and just spending our time with those that reinforce what we already think. Absolutely. I think that social media exacerbates this, that it's almost like an echo chamber that we only hear our own views repeated back to us. And therefore we assume that everybody in our world thinks the same way or holds a similar point of view. And, you know, we've had criticism for some people that we've had on that I've received. And I know you have Jake of uh, why didn't we challenge them on this or that they disagreed. And, the point around the high performance podcast is there's not just one way of high performance. There's not one definition of it. And I think what we're trying to discover is all those definitions and allow people to come up with their own answer to the question of what does it mean for you? And I just love pushing people to think outside the box. We had we had a conversation on, on BT Sport the other day um, about the direct link between a football career and dementia. And I said to the guys that I was with, I said... Um, you know, maybe in the future, there's no heading in football. And none of them could envisage football without heading the ball. It's purely because we've been conditioned to believe that that's football. But if when football was first invented 100, 150 years ago, heading wasn't part of the game, we would now be saying, you can't have heading in football. It's, it's like saying they can pick the ball up in the middle of the, of, of the pitch. You just can't envisage it because you've never seen it. And I think that that is the biggest bit of learning for me from these pods is thinking absolutely upside down, back to front, totally outside the box. So you put something up, didn't you, on your uh, Instagram the other day saying the light bulb wasn't invented because they improved the candle. Someone at some point had to think, hold on, the candle is not good enough and <laughs> believe something that didn't even exist could could be a reality. I call uh, what you did, and I know that conversation you had was really powerful, Jay. Um, I, I, I know um, the family of Nobby Styles, for example, and I know that they uh, found the fact that you brought that conversation into the mainstream really gratifying because uh, Nobby had died of uh, dementia uh, and they attribute some of that to, uh, to his career. But I call the process what you were doing, uh, the Mad Men test. And I don't know if you remember the series Mad Men that was set in the 1960s and it was about the advertising industry. And what I loved about it was when you watch it, all the things that today almost think unthinkable, like the sexism, the smoking in the offices, the drinking at lunchtime and all those practices that part of the attraction of the program was you're watching it with 50 years perspective and going, how could they do that? How did that behave? And I think if you transform and think, what are people in 50 years' time going to look back to us in 2020 and go, why were they doing that? Or I can't believe that that was a standard practice. And that very question that you're asking of, can football be played without heading, is unthinkable at the moment. But actually, in 50 years' time, they'll struggle to believe that we ever used to do that, I'm sure. And I think that's the process of what we're trying to do. Challenge convention, challenge the way that things are and ask how could they be it just comes back to belief doesn't it like let's say we want to get um justin bieber lewis hamilton joe biden and the queen all on the podcast for a roundtable discussion right the chances are slim but you have to believe that might be possible well everything starts with belief so the very fact that you can conceive it then says so if i can imagine it's possible now we work backwards from there to say so how would we make that happen so how do we know somebody that would know somebody else when i wrote my very first book years ago i'll give you a neat example of it that i didn't know what i was doing in many ways and i made a list of all the people i'd liked and admired and wanted to go and interview and one of them on the list was muhammad ali 
And when I sat down, I thought, well, who do I know that might know Muhammad Ali? And the reality was I was only one person removed from him, that I knew someone that knew Angelo Dundee, who was his coach, who was therefore able to approach him and ask him whether he'd give me any time just to ask him some questions. So, but it was by having that, that, that belief that I would like to do it, that you work backwards from it and then work out whether it's possible or not. Listen, before we go, there was a nice question came in from Simon and he said, based on the people you've had on the pod, think of if you had your own team, an owner, a manager, an assistant manager and a captain, who would they be? <laughs> That's a brilliant question. I think we'd have to go for Eddie Hearn as the owner. Okay, I would go with Holly Tucker. Okay, yep. Yeah. Uh, manager. Manager. I am going to plump for Maurizio Pochettino. Yeah, I'd agree with that on that one. I like, I liked him. I like the warmth and uh, the sheer decency of him. So who works as his assistant? I'd go for Tracy Neville. I'm saying Sean Dyche, just to wind up Sean <laughs> <laughs> And the captain? I'm going to go for Ant Middleton there. It's like a cultural architect, somebody like somebody that would lead from the front. Wouldn't he? Oh, who am I going to have as the captain of the... I'm going to go... Um, I don't want to go for someone from football because it seems too simple, doesn't it? Yeah. So I'm going to go for... Um, I'm going to have Eddie Hearn as my captain. <laughs> Two winning teams there. Blimey. I'd love to go toe-to-toe against you. Right, Damien, thank you so much as always, buddy. No, thanks, Jake. Loved it. Really enjoyed that. And I hope that you enjoyed our conversation with Sir Clive Woodward. Um, I hope you take what Sir Clive had to say into the rest of your week. If you're new to the pod, go right back to the very start of the first series and get listening to it. You can find Damien on Instagram at Liquid Thinker. I'm at Jake Comfrey. The podcast is at High Performance. We're also on YouTube as well. Just search for the High Performance Podcast and subscribe on there. Check out our website, highperformancepodcast.co.uk. What we're saying is basically you can't get away from us. As always, a huge thank you to Will O'Connor for his hard work on this episode. Also to Finn Ryan from Rethink Audio for his efforts as well. Uh, The biggest thanks goes to the professor. Cheers, Damien. Have you got any uh, little words of wisdom for people for the rest of their week? I'm going to quote your dad and say, carry your beliefs lightly. Love that one. There you go, people. Carry your beliefs lightly. You've got your end goal, but be flexible about how you get there. Have a brilliant week. Thank you very much for listening. Please rate, please review, but please carry on being part of the High Performance Podcast community. See you later. 